The Bragg Harvard Mohammed Smith Why We Can't Wait Scholarship has made another year of awards to students at Grand Rapids Community College in Michigan. This is a unique opportunity for people planning careers in public service because applicants and their recommenders are asked to speak to the applicant's cultural competency skills. Skills needed in everyday life, but essential for those going into public service. If you'd like to donate to the BHMS scholarship, you can do so by going to grcc.edu backslash give today. Greetings. Welcome to season two of T, the Educational Architect. I'm your host, Morsalata. This season is dedicated to recovering, mainly because I was finally able to recover five conversations that I recorded in 2019 with some dynamic educators. So I hope you check out season two, Recovered Conversations, and maybe even take a peek back at the first season of T. So as always, we're going to start the podcast with the origin story, the educational origin story, because we all have them. And I think that's a good way to kind of get to know both of you. So Christina, would you like to go first? Now, I was in eighth grade, 13 years old, in my history class, all of the students had to do a presentation on a president. My president was Warren G. Harding. And so instead of just doing my presentation, this 13-year-old likes to be creative and engaging. So I asked my father the night before if I could borrow one of his suits and his shirt and tie and his shoes. And so when it's my turn to present, I had already gone out to the hallway and then I marched myself right into my eighth grade classroom. And I went up to the front and I started rocking with my hands pulling on the suspenders. I am Warren G. Harding. And I talked about myself. It was a very good teachable moment. What I did not realize was there was a professor from Ohio Wesleyan University, Dr. Suddeth, I don't remember his first name, who heard my presentation and he was intrigued. So he asked me at the end of my class, I was 13 years old, if I would please teach his African-American literature class. I was surprised and I gladly said yes. And so he made it official with a letter to me, which is in my scrapbook. <laughs> and I went to his class of about, thir about 13 to 15 students at Ohio West Wesleyan University. And I was quite surprised that many of these white students did not know who Frederick Douglass was. They hadn't heard very much about Harriet Tubman. I could hardly imagine. So that's when I got my first flavor of what it's like to teach. And I instructed these people, these college students about African-American greats, the ones who are popular, such as the ones I, you know, some I just mentioned, and those who are not so well-known, like Louis Latimer or Janet Seliger or Sojourner Truth and so forth. I had a great time, and that's when I knew that's what I want to do. I want to be a professor, and I'm the type of professor who likes to be engaging in the classroom, so I still do visual, I do audio, but I'm definitely kinetics, hands-on. I still do performance art. I'll talk more about that later. Okay, because I have a couple of questions. Okay. So I just want to get this straight. You are 13 years old. Yes. 
and this professor invites you to teach his college class. Yes. <laughs> and I have my lecture notes and everything. <laughs> I also want to ask you about the president you talked about. Did you get to select or were you assigned? I was assigned. And Warren G. Harding had affairs. I got to talk about some of those. And he was from Ohio. I had a lot to say about Warren G. Harding. And since I was living in Ohio at the time, he was appropriate. Well, I appreciate the fact that you got an assignment. Yes. To do this prof this president. Correct. And you made the most of it. Yes. You didn't think, I want to do another president. <laughs> I so made that, that president come alive in that classroom. I, yeah, I really, I appreciate that. And I think that's an important point just to point out if there are any students out there listening to this podcast. We hope so. You can find a connection and that's you right. can make the most of something you've been assigned. Absolutely. Use that's your creative thinking. Be thought provoking. Try to think of something insightful and innovative and then make it yours. That is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. This takes me back to my high school year. By the way, I'm from Africa. That's where I was born and raised. I was born in the 50s, and my dad and mom never learned to read or write. They had a farm, and I hated working on the farm. My parents were poor, and their poverty, and all the hardship we were going through motivated me. Anytime we were working on the farm, weeding in the tobacco or cotton uh, field, I was crying, literally crying. And my dad told me one day, he said, son, you don't want to keep doing this for the rest of your life. You better study hard and go to the top of the mountain. For him, go to the top of the mountain means get the most out of your uh, schooling, your education, get the highest possible degree you can get. I was motivated. I was motivated. So my parents' poverty, their hardship, were the sources, the main sources of mine. Success, because I can look back today and see the journey that I made. So it taught me a lesson. If you have motivation, if you're motivated, if you have the determination, you can achieve anything. So I made that happen. And I should thank my dad and my mom for giving me that advice. They said they weren't allowed to go to the white man's school at that time. And it was unfortunate, they said, but they wanted to make sure that all their kids got education, good education. That's all I can say. Okay, thank you. And I have some questions, if you don't mind. No problem. The first question is just to clarify for anyone who's listening, because we like to say Africa a lot, and it's a huge place. So can you tell us where in Africa were you born? The country or? Yeah, Africa is about 40, 54 countries. Mm -hmm. I was born on the west coast of Africa uh, in a French-speaking country squeezed between Nigeria, the most populated country on the continent, and Ghana. 
So Benin is to the west of Nigeria and uh, to the east of Ghana. Well, that's great. I'm happy to hear it's French speaking so I can bring my daughter there and she can do all the work of speaking <laughs> French and I can just enjoy because <laughs> she majored in French. Good for her. So I'd like to thank both of you for sharing those origin stories. We're in this movement of Black Lives Matter and we have to suffer when we see cars pass by, dogs lives matter. I've seen that. Police lives matter. Yes, our voice is expressed because of the different sufferings we've had, civil rights, Black Panther movement, and so forth. And I don't want to monopolize even in the Harlem Renaissance. So I'm glad that you made those comments because I think this is a good point to transfer over and let's hear from our second guest who's going to talk about two points. Well, two sort of large areas, learning and educating through teaching and also diversity of thought. So, Thank you very much. Talking about learning and uh, educating through teaching it has always been my philosophy as a teacher that you can not teach if you don't learn. I remember presenting when I was in grad school, presenting a paper with uh, some classmates, a couple of classmates. It was about culture in the language classroom. How do you teach culture in a language classroom if you're not prepared to learn from the learners? So that was the tackle, teaching African literature and culture to speakers of other languages, for example, learning from the learners. You got to learn from them. Mm -hmm. It's not just their culture. You got to learn about what is it that they're bringing to the table because they don't come to the classrooms empty-headed. They come with their problems, they come with their everything, anxiety, etc. In other words, it's about knowing who the students are, get to know them and learn from them. And frankly, and this is what I always tell myself, the day I stop learning, I must quit teaching. Mm -hmm. That's very important. People may think that's crazy you got a PhD. My son always said to me, when he asked me a question, I said, oh, that's a good question, but I don't know the answer. And he would say, oh, dad, I thought you were a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I replied saying, because I'm a doctor doesn't mean I know everything. Because you're teaching me something right now as you're asking this question. Teaching. Yes. Yeah, and, you teach me. I appreciate that because I've been teaching for about 18 years now, like officially teaching. And I remember maybe about after four or five years when I finally got over the personal issues that I had to tell students, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that should be the homework assignment. Someone's going to come here tomorrow with an answer. It might be me, but don't rely on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and that was so freeing. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready to teach better now because I let them know I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's very, very important to be honest about it and tell the student you don't know. Then they will not feel, you know, like guilty or stupid. 
You know, they don't know. Yeah, see, well, the teacher doesn't know. She doesn't <laughs> know everything. She doesn't know everything. That's why we in school, that's why somebody is teaching, because teaching is actually helping people to learn. And what you're helping them to learn, you're learning at least, if not the content, at least about their strategies. And if you don't know how a student learn, how are you going to teach? Because you're going to accommodate all those strategies, you're going to, you know, adapt to their way of doing things, of learning, as she was saying that she was a hands-on person. Yeah, some of them will be hands-on, some of them will be visual. So you're going to watch all of that. So it's, it's very, very important. And what I'm hearing from you is also not that it's coming from the front of the classroom. So because as you said, you can't teach unless there's someone there ready to take what you're putting out. And if I'm teaching one way and they're not learning and I'm not learning from that, then I'm not a very good teacher. Right. That is what I heard. <laughs> right. I, I have a phrase or a saying in my classroom. I say we have a common goal. And I ask them if they know what that common goal is. They don't get it until I say success. Because I want to be successful as a teacher. They want to be successful as learners. And I'm not successful until you are successful. So that's a common goal. So we all not fighting each other, mm -hmm. but we all trying really hard to get to the same destination. Be successful. It's, it's, it's very important. So how do you know when that's happened? Is there an experience like you're like, oh, this is happening, this come and go? Yes, they know that we have a common goal. They know that I'm learning as they're, as I'm teaching, and they are also learning from me, and they are also teaching me. I want them to be open-minded. I want them to be honest. If they don't understand, then they should, they should ask questions. So I don't know the answers to all the questions they will ask. Then I will turn the floor to other, you know, other students, their classmates, who would maybe volunteer responses. Sometimes I pretend I don't know, yes. but which is a good strategy, because I want more interaction. It's not just student professor, student professor. It's got to be student to student as well. So because we have student learning outcomes, when we assess the learning, yes, we can find out whether learning has actually taken place. All right, and and that also speaks to the idea of diversified thinking because when you yes. turn over the floor, when the classroom, you know, becomes a community, I often like you don't even have to do that as a teacher because now they know we we might need to work this out. Uh, how do we do this together? And people think very differently. I have um, a niece who is most likely has some sort of real severe like math thing because she just can't do math. But when she was younger, she would figure out math problems. Like she would get to the right answer, and there was like absolutely no way when she showed you what you did, what she did to figure it out, you couldn't follow that at all. <laughs> but at the end, it was the right answer. And so I'm like, wow, I. In a math classroom, she wouldn't ever, she would never, and she didn't pass math, even though she could not tell you how she got to it. And all the stuff that she'd written down that just looked, didn't make any sense. But she had the right answer at the end. Thanks for listening to The Educational Architect. We will return after this brief break.
and not having, you know, a teacher that or in classroom that would say, okay, <laughs> let's figure this out, like, because you know this, and how do we do that and bringing and being that kind of like inclusive and that kind of people think differently. Some people take the scenic route. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people find shortcuts. Ernest Hemingway found shortcuts. <laughs> Herman Melville took the scenic <laughs> route. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add to either one of those? Yes. Uh, uh, diversity of thought. Uh, this reminds me of a geolinguistics paper that I presented at uh, Baruch College in New York. And the title was Thinking Differently, Thinking Alike, The World We Share. A lot of time we think alike, but there are specific circumstances. Just imagine a category of people who are wealthy, living in a castle, mm-hmm. and then another category of poor people living in huts or mud houses. People who are wealthy think alike. Uh-huh. People who are poor think alike. But if you bring them together, the broad base, they're not thinking differently, they're thinking alike. Based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's the bottom line. We all have the same aspirations, the same needs, physiological, self-esteem, to the top, self-actualization. But the means, the strategies to get to those points, they what will make the difference. Yes, because yes. the thing is how you bring them together. Yes, yes. We're all the same human beings, having yes. the same needs. How do you get those needs satisfied? And getting over it, and that reminds me of like, and getting over the fear that I am giving up something to include you. Like, I have to give up something, my wealth, my sense of self, my, how I see the people that I already am comfortable with. Like, I have to give up something to include other people is what I've seen people in clear positions of privilege. Like I have to let go of some of my privilege. That's true, but you're not, actually, you're not giving something because you are opening up and you are in this way of inclusion that is scary because it feels like I have to give something in order to include you. But we include those that we already have, like we feel comfortable with, we already accepted it. For example, all the meetings we go to is educators, faculty meetings and things like that. And I was part of this sort of like uncovering your bias and trying to get over with colleagues. And this one woman said that she had to, you know, she had to come to the realization that she had to understand that her fear, like getting over her fear for like where she lives and like being in a more diverse, like living in a more diverse neighborhood or something like that. And she said, so, you know, I have to give up or like she was giving other people something. I'm like, you, you're not giving it. It belongs to all of us. Mm-hmm. Like the right to feel safe and included belongs to everyone. Yeah. And the fact that you think you're giving it up to something is like the fundamental problem because you're not. Yeah. And she was like, I, you know, I didn't think about it that way. But it's that that kind of trying to bring people together and then see what we can do. The difference is lies most of the time the way we perceive things, mm-hmm. our perception. Let's talk about 
worldview in general, which is deeply rooted in your culture, in your language, the way you perceive the world, the word, the way you interpret it, the world, it's completely different. If you're looking, uh, looking into, let's say, uh, English and German, although both are classified Germanic languages, they have their differences. When the English say, I am hungry, in German, they say, I have hunger. Each have a hunger. But in English, I'm hungry. And the French. You're hungry, I am. <laughs> and the French will say, je fine, just like the German. Right. So that's how they see the world. I have hunger. But the French can also say, like the English, je suis affamé, but no, je suis affamé would give a different meaning than I am hungry. So our culture makes a difference. Shittizis mean all the time say, you're quiet. He's talking about Dr. Christina Pinkston. And I, um, Who's not quiet. <laughs> I'm very personable. I know when to talk. I know when to be loud, etc. So it's a culture. It's a culture issue. It's cultural. And it's, it's also personality. Yeah, but it also makes sense because what you're saying is earlier you're saying like we have to learn about other people's culture. Yes. We also have to become aware of our own. Oh, right. of our own. <laughs> Definitely. And that is yes. the, that's yes. very difficult yes. to become aware of your own. Um, especially if you've lived in a culture that has provided you with many, many blinders to the rest of the world. Yep. And that those blinders are this, this way of seeing and this way of being that is privileged. And that's why you can't see it because it has, this has been laid out for you, but becoming, because once you become aware of like, oh, this is, this is what I'm bringing to the table. You know, I can be less appreciative of the other. I'm like, oh, yeah. that's cool. Oh, look, I like to be like that. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me become aware of myself. Because I'm really interested in cross-cultural pragmatics, trying to understand people through their culture, mm -hmm. the way they communicate. It is a piece of wisdom in Africa. And scientifically, in communication studies, you know that every single language has four areas of skills. The perceptive skills, which are the reading and the listening, and the productive skills, which are the speaking and the writing. Okay. And most of the time, studies have shown that the receptive skill of listening is what people do the most. Why? Most of the time, people listen more. In all cultures? Across cultures. Okay. Across cultures, the percentage, the average, oh, okay. people listen more. Of course, there are people who, who talk more, et cetera, et cetera, but the average, people listen. And I will give you this example. The silent period is natural. You see a baby born? Silent period before they can start producing language? Look at it, consider that, imagine that. In Africa, you listen to better understand. You listen to learn. Don't open your mouth until you understand. Um, Unless you want to ask questions to better understand. So older people are allowed to talk. 
talk, they talk, but the younger folks listen and you learn how to even interrupt and ask questions. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Tea. We welcome you back for future episodes. I'm Moor Salata Mohammed, your host and producer. The music you heard at the start of this episode was composed by Kasira Mohammed Smith. And until next time, sumum bonum and Ubuntu.